As a consultant, how can you get potential clients to pay attention when there are so many other thought leaders publishing content all the time? Start your own interview podcast and invite your ideal clients onto it. Learn more at spotlightpodcasting.com. So welcome back to Leaders Consulting. Uh, today I'm here with Alain Hunkins, who's a leadership development consultant who's worked with over 2,000 groups of leaders in 25 countries uh, with clients including Walmart, Pfizer, Citigroup, General Electric, State Farm Insurance, IBM, General Motors, Microsoft, and plenty more. Uh, in addition to uh, being a speaker and leadership, uh, as well as consultant, trainer, and coach, he's also the author of the book, Cracking the Leadership Code. So, Alan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Jonathan, thank you. I'm really excited to be here with you today. Absolutely. Um, so, Alan, why don't we get cracking and dive into a unique approach, tip, or tool, or strategy that you think that other consultants should know about and they may not? Sure. You know, it's interesting. I think all of us as consultants, we are all experts in one particular area or maybe even more depending on where we are. And I think where we tend to go with that expertise is we go into content as opposed to process. And I think something that I do consistently with my clients when I start, let's say, engaging with them and doing discovery work is I make, I'm a big believer, this is one of my, my big phrases, is that people are good at many things, but reading minds is not one of them. So I actually upfront ask people, I say, I just want to be super explicit around what would be the best manner for us to work together in terms of how do you like to go through information? And basically, whether it's, am I sharing information to them first? Are they sharing to me? Are we going whole to part? Are we going linear to sequ linear sequential, going step by step by step? Are we you know staying big picture? Are we getting detailed? And I basically will bring that up with a client before we get into the actual content of what we're talking about. And usually it's really well received because let's face it, we all realized, yeah, we're all different. And it's also for me, a chance to practice what I'm preaching, which is around effective communication. So it's amazing. You know, a lot of us don't do that because we think, oh, but like we just have to sort of pretend like everyone knows the best way to do this when there is no one best way. There's eight best ways. Um, and so we have to find out what the one best way is. And instead of figuring instead of knowing it, why don't you just go ahead and ask? You know, it's much better than trying to, you know, put a blindfold on and see if you can hit the bullseye with your eyes closed. Yeah. I, I actually learned that lesson through conversations with a client where I've been sending over um, you know, loom videos, basically screen share videos. And some people yeah. they absolutely love this. You know, they go, Oh, your videos are amazing. But I noticed that um you can see when someone's actually watched that video. She never watched any of the videos. So I was like you know, I, I noticed, uh, you know, I send these videos, but I'm, I'm not sure you're uh, actually, you know, do you watch them at all or you think? What? And she's like, I'm sorry, you know, this is just, I just have ADD with these videos. I can't listen, you know, I can't just sit down and watch a video. I need things to be, uh, you know, bullet items. I'm really sorry. Um, yeah. So I was like, well, I'm glad I know that now because that saves me a lot of time and energy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we tend to think, you know, we tend to fall in love with our own solutions. One of my friends yeah. said about consultants, all consultants were like wineries. Everyone's like, our wine is the only good wine out there and everything else is rubbish. He didn't actually use the word rubbish, but <laughs> you get the idea. And so I think it's important for us not to get too enamored of our own stuff before we figure out, ultimately, we're not here to offer anything. We're here to solve a problem. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and Alan, can you tell us about 
an, a resource uh, that you've come across. It may be a book, article, podcast, community um, that's had an impact on you either professionally or, or personally. Yeah, sure. So um, like many consultants with uh, the COVID pandemic, a lot of my work was face-to-face before this all started. And I was like, okay, I have to shift. Pivot was a word many of us used. And I came across a really wonderful company. Um, They are called Enjoy Global, enjoyglobal.com. You can check them out. And what they do is they take content and they have a technology platform by which you can put it all on their app where it becomes gamified and you can kind of take your content and chunk it out into little micro lesson or micro learning chunks. And so over the course of whether it's 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, you can actually drip feed this in micro lessons and it uses gamification. It uses positive psychology and it builds habits. So if you're looking to create some behavior change, I'm a huge fan. And so it's one of the things that has become part of bread and butter of my business I'm really excited about it. So if you give them a call, it's um, Phil and Jeff are the guys that run the place. Enjoyglobal.com. Tell them I sent you because <laughs> we're, we're, we're pals over there. But no, I'm a big fan. And again, it's not something that two years ago had you said, oh, are you going to go into micro learning on, on asynchronous gamified hmm. technology app-based learning? I wouldn't have planned for that. But as they say, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think with a pandemic, that mother of invention has been birthing over time for many people. So figuring out some things that work, you know, just like I was asking you about different tech apps, because I'm always trying to figure out how can I do what I do more effectively and efficiently. Yeah. And I'm curious, where did you, where did you discover that tool? I discovered them through a podcast. So it turns out that Jeff Baeto, who's the CEO of the company, um, had a podcast and we got talking. And at the time they had been doing pretty much just working uh, doing using their technology in large corporate settings, but they were just shifting over to working with consultants and fault leaders like myself. And they said, hey, we would like to do a, a beta test or a beta test, if you're from Britain, as <laughs> my friends have told me. Um, so uh, would you like to be one of our beta testers and go through? And I said, sure. And this was back in a long time ago now, back in the summer of 2020 is when we got this started. And um, yeah, the rest is history. So I've run about 11 of these cohort of cohorts through about 450 people through these various challenges since then. And it's, it's really impactful. So yeah, I learned about them through a podcast. Awesome. Yeah. Power of podcasting. Yeah. There you go. Um, so Alan, I know you've had like quite a wide ranging career. You've, you know, you've, worked, you've been through this, you know, you've been going through the whole sort of leadership development uh, trajectory for quite some time. I'm curious, during that time, have you come across, uh, is there anyone who has had like a significant impact or influence on your your career that really stands out to you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, just a little background on me. So I got into, I didn't go to business school. Here I am working in the business world. I didn't go to business school. I actually trained to be a professional actor. I have an MFA from a theater conservatory, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And then I came back to New York, got involved doing arts and education work with some educational consulting companies and also performing off-Broadway. And so somehow I transitioned and got my first, what turned out to be corporate training job in 1997. And at the time I had very little business experience and I had about as much consulting experience, which is next to none. And suddenly I was brought in to facilitate these leadership training and management training programs. And I was going to, and my first clients that I was working with were these multinationals. And I was working with directors and VPs and even some CEOs. 
And honestly, Jonathan, I was terrified. So anyway, the person who had a lot of influence on me, I had this wonderful mentor named Sue. And Sue said something really valuable that has stuck with me ever since. And since then, I've heard other people talk about it too. But she was the first for me. And she said, when you go into these meetings, don't try to be a know-it-all. You're meeting people who know everything they need to know about their business. Having the knowledge is not the issue. You're, you don't need to be a know-it-all. You need to focus on being a learn-it-all. You have to be the most intensely curious and interested person in these meetings. And basically, you need to be curious, ask questions, and listen, listen, listen with purpose. And I said, great, Sue. What does that look like? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> and so at the time, we were, we had a, like, the company had three different, basically, training programs that would all be customized and tweaked to meet clients' needs and tailored in certain ways. And so there was a certain framework to the programs, but since they had to be customized, I needed to understand their needs. So basically what Sue did is she sat down with me and she started creating this question template, a list of, I don't know, at the time, probably 15 or 20 questions that I could start to use in different situations. And so, for example, one of the early questions, and again, if you've done any work around questioning skills, you know the importance of asking a really juicy, open-ended question. Basically, I'd oftentimes start off and I'd meet so-and-so, you know, Mr. Ms., you know, executive VP or CEO. It's like, all right, so tell me what's the biggest challenge your team is facing, right? And then as we were going through and creating this, this list of questions, Sue said something, she put a little asterisk next to all these questions and the bottom of the page where the asterisk was said, now shut up and listen, right? Because I think that is the, that is the key ingredient is, is you've got to ask this really good question, but then listen, be so focused because they're going to say something that's going to go, oh, can you speak more about this? And then you dig deeper and you probe deeper. And you also, by listening so intently and following up so well, not only do you get good information to help you deliver whatever service or product you're trying to do for the client, but you start to build these really good relationships because people feel so well listened to. You know, I remember I was working with a client named Josephine. She's a, a VP in, in, for a retail company. And I remember finishing up. So I asked her one of these questions, right? I said, so jo we were finishing up our call. And I said, Josephine, is there anything that I didn't ask you today that I ought to have asked you? And she said, that's a really good question. And I thought to myself, I know it's on my list. It's like question number 14 <laughs> on my template here. And she said, no, 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 no. It's been, it's a, been great. You know, I, I can't think of anything else, but I just want to say that this entire exchange, this has been like a really good therapy session or something. I feel so much lighter because of it. So I know that we're in the consulting business to solve some kind of a problem, but we got to remember no matter what industry you're in, whether it is pharmaceuticals or high tech or retail, doesn't like, we're in the people business. And at our core, all of us want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be valued. We want to be listened to. We want to be recognized. And so your ability to lock in on someone and connect so they go, whoa, and to the point where, how did you make them feel? You know, there's this wonderful quote from Maya Angelou who says, you know, people won't remember what you said. They won't even remember what you did, but they will remember how you made them feel. And so this question template, this whole idea of listening with purpose, shut up and listen, asterisk, that is a, something that Sue said to me. And I have to say that that skill, and I think that is in some ways the most fundamental and maybe the most important of all consulting skills, because without that ability to listen and respond, how are you going to diagnose? How are you going to build relationship? And how are you going to ultimately solve someone's problems? 
Yeah, yeah. That's definitely a skill that I'm trying to learn myself. I, I actually find sometimes I'm a poor listener. You know, my mind will go elsewhere. I'll be distracted. And that's actually where I find recording calls really helpful. I'll, I'll go back and I'll rewatch them and I'll pick up on like intonations or when they said a certain thing or sometimes as well, I find just like relaying back conversations to my wife or, 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 or she watches me have a conversation. She'll pick up on all these things that I just completely didn't, didn't pick up on. Yeah. You know, you bring up a really great point here, Jonathan, around this idea of focus, because look, we are all more distracted than ever because there's more distractions than ever. So one of the things especially when I do consulting calls like this, is I have to do them in a very specific area. I could tell you a whole story. I won't go into all the detail, but I remember trying to do one of these calls once from a payphone outside of the children's section of the Barnes & Noble bookstore in Astor, an Astor, Astor Place in the West Village in, in New York City. And that's right. And it was just horrible, horrific. So I would... So all of which I say is don't be somewhere where you're distracted. The other thing is I turn my phone off. I, tr- I close all my windows I just get completely focused on that. And the other thing that I do, and this is this may work for some of you listening, is I actually type and take notes. I don't capture every single word, but I'm a pretty good typist, about 60, 70, 80 words a minute, depending. And so I actually listen in. And what I find is writing as they talk, even if I'm recording it as well, is it forces me to lock into what they're saying. And then I can refer back to it's just kind of like the way you might have taken notes when you were in class, in a lecture class or something. I just find it helps me to focus my own thinking on what they're saying. And I can also put little highlights on my text, or I can make a little note to myself to come back to something a little later on. And I find that's really helpful as opposed to just listening to them going, okay, like thinking, because I'm not going to remember all this stuff. You know, I won't remember the stuff that happened five minutes ago. So that's why I want to capture it. Yeah. Um, I'm actually uh, also reading a book at the moment uh, by a chap called Eric Nuzum, um, who's done a lot of work with NPR and a lot of big shows. And uh, it's called Make Noise, and obviously it's on the topic of of how to create really good podcasts. And when he talks about interview situations and talks about listening, um, he also uh, emphasizes the use of silence um, and strategic silence. And so he talks about how oftentimes, like when you ask questions, it's a good idea to to use silence because people want to fill it, and it's usually like usually the people will answer with a, qu- a question with something they may have prepared or first comes to mind. But the most interesting part is usually what comes after that silence and they try and fill it. Um, so that's, yeah, that's also sort of another technique I'm picking up on as well. Very powerful. Silence is huge. And, and I went, when I coach new consultants and facilitators and folks that do this kind of work, I say silence has got to be your friend. And I say, I will sit in it for a long time. You know, I, you will not out silence me. I will, I'll, I'll get really to the point where you think it's so uncomfortable. It's not so bad. And you're like, well, let's sit here. It's okay. And learning how to get comfortable with that as opposed to feeling this need to jump in and solve it. Cause when you do that, you take all the tension out of the room and there is healthy tension that is going on in those moments of silence for sure. Yeah. I also have an audio editor who tends to clean up a lot of the silences in post-production anyway. So well, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So no need to, to be worried about silences. And okay. So I'm just switching gears a little bit and talking a little bit more about the, the client work that you do. I'm curious, could you tell us more about what are the characteristics that your clients share? Um, you know, what do those ideal clients look like for you? Who are the people that you, you tend to work with best? 
Yeah, sure. I'd say a common denominator amongst my clients is I'll use the word aspiring. Um, they have either themselves or oftentimes it's a decision maker who's got a team or a whole organization where they feel like you know the level in which these people are currently leading, and I'll put a little asterisk and come back to that word in a moment, um, the level at which they're currently leading is not as good as they'd like it to become. They would like to become better leaders. Um, and so let me just go back to that word leader. Um, my definition of leadership is not about a job position or title or that you have X number of direct reports. We're not talking about formal authority. It's really about your ability to influence, plain and simple. So anytime that any of us are trying to get anyone to get anything done, that's leadership. And if you think about it, the first person that we all have to lead every day is ourselves. And so whether it's self-leadership, whether it's other leadership, whether it's influence without authority, whether it's matrixed or dotted line reporting, whether it's just whether you're a project manager and you have zero, zero authority over anyone, what it comes down to ultimately is how can you get to an outcome while working in and through and with other people? And so my ideal clients are people who recognize there's a gap between where they are at their ability to do that and where they'd like to go. And what I like to think of rather than, you know, I think we all hear that. And I'm sure you're listening to this. You're going, yeah, of course, of course, we all want to aspire and get better. And that can sound very lofty and ethereal. But what I've done in my work is I've actually broken this down into some really practical components. And what I've found is that there are three meta skills, these overarching skill sets that when you break that leadership, that influence down to its combinated denominator, these three show up time and time again. So the first meta skill is around connection. That is, we talked about that earlier already with that, you know, in terms of the, the question template. So your ability to connect, because at its core, leadership is a relationship between two human beings, right? Someone who would like to lead and someone who chooses to follow. And that choice is very much an act, which is what engagement is all around. So the first meta skill is connection. Uh, the second meta skill is around communication, which is how do we, the two or the three or how many people it is, how do we make sure that we are together, coming together and not just sharing information, but creating insight so that we end up with common and mutual understanding. And my definition of that is understanding is that you see reality the way I see it and I see it the way you see it. And that is critical for any kind of long-term project because having mutual understanding becomes the platform on which we now can make best decisions for future actions. And if we have clear understanding, we make good decisions. And if we don't, we make bad decisions and we get bad results. So number one is connection. Number two is communication. And then the third meta skill is around collaboration. That is, how do we as an organization, a team, whether it's a team of one or two or five or 50 or whatever the number might be, what are we doing to create an environment where people can perform at their best? And specifically, we can look at the kind of four underpinning pieces to collaboration. What are we doing to create, number one, safety for the people, both physical safety and psychological safety? Number two, what are we doing so that people have a sense of ownership over what they're doing, that they feel like they have autonomy, that they're not being micromanaged, and therefore they want to creatively engage in their work? Number three, how do people have energy, right? So, so many organizations I work in, it's like you know, the land of the zombies, right? So what are we doing so that people are energized in and by the work? And there's things that we can do to structure energy into the workplace. And there are things that we can do to drain energy from the workplace. So I help people to understand that. And the fourth one is around purpose. 
That is, what are we doing so that people understand that what you are doing is contributing to something greater than yourself that has meaning that is larger? Because when people are contributing to something that has meaning, guess what? They're more energized. They make more progress. They're more motivated, et cetera. So three meta skills, connection, communication, and collaboration. So ultimately, clients that I work with are looking to increase their abilities ultimately in skills in one or more of those three different areas. Um, I'd be curious to hear of maybe uh, an example or a case study that you'd be willing to share, maybe where you know things were really wrong, maybe in one of those particular areas, like or or maybe it was like disaster zone. It was like where do we even start? Um, I'd love to hear you know what maybe an example where you went in and you said, okay, this this is where we need to start. Are there is there anything that comes specifically to mind? Sure. Yeah. So I was working with a tech company that does some data analytics in the tech space. And what they recognized is that they had a team of highly skilled technicians who, and this is very common, right? They were very high performers. In fact, they were so good at their tech job. They're like, Jonathan, you are so good. We're going to promote you. And now you're going to be the team leader of all the other tech people. Of course, you had all these technical skills didn't say anything about any of your other kind of leadership or people skills. And so lo and behold, they ended up creating this culture where you had a whole organization with people who didn't know how to lead other people. And so we had to, in some ways, you know, and these are really smart people too, right? So you can't say, you know what, you suck at this because all that's going to do is put up their defensive hackles, right? Their walls are going to come up. So it's more of a question of how do we use the research and the science and showing them how they actually, what has made them so strong is not working so well anymore. Or as my colleague and and mentor, Marshall Goldsmith says in the title of one of his books, what got you here isn't going to get you there, won't get you there. And so we had to really break things down uh, for them. And actually, and so the way that I tend to work around this is numerous, and this isn't necessarily in this order, but it includes all these different elements. Um, because you have, like we said at the beginning of our interview today, um, we talked about that different people have different styles. And so what I have found in my book represents this too, but when I work with teams, it's very much the same way. So one thing is you need to bring this to life with a story. So what is a story that illustrates the point you're trying to make? And so you want to bring a story in because stories want to engage people. Then for the kind of, we call them the left brain analytical cynics, they're like, all right, that's great. But like, where's the data on this? Tell me where the data is. And so you want to have done the research. So whether it's research that I've done myself, or maybe I'm pulling from a company like Gallup or Development Dimensions International, one of the big companies, like here's this research on this. So you bring in the research on this. And then the other key piece is, Talking in the research, usually it points to the fact that this is easier said than done. And then you want to get into why is this harder than it seems like it ought to be? Because most of this stuff, when it comes to things like connection and communication and collaboration, it sounds like it's common sense, but it's not common practice. And so we want to take a look at why is it so hard? So for example, with this particular group, they did not show a lot of empathy to their direct reports. So we got into this whole thing around empathy and we looked at, all right, so why is it? Why is showing people that you understand them and care how they feel, why is that actually hard to do in the workplace? And they'd come up with things like, because we're busy, we don't have time. And like, you know, asking people how they feel is going to take a lot of time. Or maybe they say things like, gosh, you know, if I ask my team how they feel, they might tell me, and I'm not a therapist, I'm an analyst, I'm a technician, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a software developer. It's like, okay, but so we get into all this and like, exactly. So these are the things that get in your way. 
And then what we take a look at is how do we break these principles around empathy and break them down into their behavioral components, like be curious, ask questions, listen with purpose, and then maybe even have them practice these things. So that's an example of how I work with one company um, using this sort of, I call that, that would be an instructional design template in terms of designing a training or some kind of, we can call it an intervention Mm. in terms of ultimately, because what clients want at the end of the day is they want some kind of behavior change. They don't want to someone coming in like, you know, I could come in and tell you I climbed Mount Everest and I survived. And that's like, that's great. But now how do I apply that back in my job at the tech company? It's like, I can't. Versus I'm looking at, okay, here are actual real world skills. Here are the behaviors that make up those skills. Here's how you can start to embed these habits. This is what's going to get in your way. Which one are you going to start doing tomorrow? So boom, 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 like very practical brass tacks. You can do this. And then, you know, do you create some kind of accountability or support structure to move that forward? And this is where sometimes I come in and say, hey, well, you know, I have this whole online 30-day challenge app. We can go through this 30-day process together to build these healthy habits of leadership moving forward. So that's an example of how I might work with clients. I, I would have imagined in, in that scenario that you described that there must have been some resistance there, right? It sounds like also the way that you you frame it is that you're framing it in a way that appeals to different personality types as well. Like you're using story, you're using data, you're using lots of different ways of, of, of framing the problem and the solution uh, in ways that appeal to different people. So a couple of things, like you said, it could engender resistance. Absolutely. So I definitely frame it with all those different pieces. I mentioned the other couple of things that I think are really valuable to think about and consider one is um bringing in terms of bringing this in is humor. All right. So, and part of that is I also am very aware of my use of pronouns. So I don't say you need to do this. Do you, I say, we need to do this. And I struggle with these things too, because then suddenly I'm not this wise, you know, the sage on the stage. Like I've got this perfect, just follow my lead. It's like my role is much more of this, we call it the guide on the side, right? I'm Look, I'm two steps further on this journey than you are, but I'm on this journey too. And I fall into holes and I struggle. And so bringing, and, and it's true, right? Because I'm not perfect at these things. And I bring in jokes, but I'll say things like how my wife will say, now, Ellen, like you teach communication skills. Shouldn't you be better at this stuff by now? Like, oh, right. So, so I think it's being, people appreciate authenticity. And the fact is when it comes to human behavior, no one's perfect. I mean, let's face it. I mean, Mother Teresa was great in a certain dimension, but you know, she was not someone else. You know, she was not Einstein, and Einstein was not Mother Teresa. So, like, no one has got a 360 degree perfection in all attributes of personality. So, that being said, let's embrace our humanity, embrace some of our limitations, and go from there. And I find that taking that attitude, people appreciate it. And you know, when I was younger in my career, I kind of felt like, well, oh, if I speak that way, would more senior people listen to me? And, you know, that was, I think, part of it is, is that fine line, because I think many people I talk to and work with suffer from imposter syndrome, the sense of like, oh, I don't really know what I'm saying. No one does, right? No one really knows. Like, you have to say it. You have to kind of put your foot down and said, this is what I think, and this is what we're doing, and, or this is what I've seen. And so now I have whatever 25, 27 years of experience where I can kind of pull on the data and trust what that is now. And you know, it's when people say to me, well, how do you know all this stuff? I said, if you do this for 27 years, you'd know this too. It's not that it's not rocket science. It's just a 
a question of pattern recognition and 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 seeing that and then recognizing it and then distilling it down to its smallest common denominator and expressing it in a way that people go, gosh, that makes sense, right? So I think one of the things, again, another piece of advice that a consultant gave me, a mentor a long time ago, is whatever you want to say, how can you say it simpler? Like, don't try to impress people with your expertise, impress them with the outcomes. So it's just so, and I think so many of us get, you know, it's like we're back in the third grade and we have this need to, you know, expound and extrapolate and use big words like utilize. You know, the fact is you can use the word use instead of utilize. It means the exact same thing and you save two syllables. You know, keep things simple. And the business world is filled with all of this hyperinflated ego kind of need to impress thing. And ultimately, simple, 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 and just be authentic and create solutions. And I think that is a, a way to move forward quite well. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of like, well, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs had a bit of an ego, but he was very good at commuting, communicating things very simply. Yeah. 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 We could we could go off on Steve Jobs in numerous directions. People always like to talk about what Steve Jobs, look, it's my exception to the rule. I mean, we won't go there right now unless you want to. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I'm curious. So you've mentioned the 30 the day uh, challenge. I'm curious why, why 30 days and, and how, how is, how do you find that? Um, helpful for habit forming or creating change in in people. I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually doing a 30 day challenge myself. It's around content creation on LinkedIn, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts as to. Fantastic. Well, you know, it's funny because people say like, how many days does it change to change a habit? How many days does it take? Right. And you know, the fact is the research is all over the place. Um, the reason that we end up with this 30 days, there was actually a plastic surgeon named Maxwell Maltz. And he said, that people who have plastic surgery, it takes them 30 days to get used to kind of their new facial or their new look or whatever it was. And somehow that particular research study got pulled out and became pop psychology. So the fact is 30 days is a pretty arbitrary number, frankly. And, you know, and one of my favorite, for those that are really interested in the idea of habit formation, my favorite book on this is a book called Tiny Habits by uh, Dr. BJ Fogg. He teaches at Stanford. You might know his work. And, you know, I've heard him on many podcasts. He's a fascinating guy. And a lot of the other work out there is actually derivative of his work on behavior change. He says, how long does it take to change a habit? Well, you give your teenager a new cell phone. How long does it take them to start adopting and using it? Like about two seconds, right? And Or any of us, like it doesn't take you long for this new thing to become a habit in your life. And so the answer, there's no one thing. Um, what we do know is that if you depend on motivation to change a habit, it is a recipe of fail for failure, which is why you know, New Year's resolutions tend to fail. Like only about 4% of people continue New Year's resolutions 12 months after they've started. Because most people, they set their New Year's resolutions. They're great intentions. I want to get healthy this year, right? Which is an intention, but you can't build a habit around, okay, so I'm going to go and be healthy today. Like you can't, that's an outcome. Being healthy, or I want to even, even if you say like, I want to lose 20 pounds, like, okay, go lose 20 pounds. You can't lose 20 pounds. Losing 20 pounds is an outcome. It is a result of other things that you do. And so if we depend on this motivation to change behavior, it's this recipe for failure. And so in terms of what we're looking to do and with these 30-day challenges, one of the keys is if motivation is, is not high, we can only do things that have very small levels of skill or effort. And so, for example, let us say you wanted to take up a new reading habit this year. You're like, oh, I want to read more. I want to read a book a week because that's what I hear CEOs read 52 books. A week. Like that is a huge bar. 
right, to go. It's kind of like saying, I want to run. I'm going to run a marathon. Like, time out, time out. Like, you haven't gotten off the couch. Why are you going for a marathon? How about you say that my habit around, let's go back to reading since we just introduced two, around reading is I am going to read a paragraph today. That's it. And if I do that, not only am I going to do it, I'm going to celebrate the success. That's progress because I'm embedding a habit. Now, here's the thing. The hardest part isn't reading the paragraph. The hardest part is the behavior of going to the book, picking up the book, and actually doing it. I mean, that is the hard thing. And so lower the bar, make it super easy, make it a word. I don't have to open the book. And because the fact is, once you're there, you're going to hang out and probably read more than a word or a paragraph. You might read a whole page or two or a chapter. And, and the thing is, over time, what you're doing is you're developing new neural pathways so that, oh, this is something that I do. And you start to identify yourself as I'm someone who picks up a book every day. And it's amazing because how we identify ourselves greatly in influences what we do. And uh, another one of my favorite authors on this is a guy named James Clear, who wrote this book, best-selling book called Atomic Habits. And one of Clear's uh, great quotes from that is like, we do not rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. So all of which to say is when it comes to habits, build systems that are simple and easy enough for you to set yourself up for success. And then once you've got something on autopilot, then take on the next one, then the next one. Right? Don't get overly ambitious and don't forget to celebrate success as you go. So there's my little soapbox for you on, on building habits. Yeah, no, that's excellent. That's what, um, that's what I encourage my wife to uh, think more about because like if, 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 if for me, like if there's a system, if it's like, okay, I have to break the breakfast in the mornings and if I know the exact, you know, step-by-step thing I need to do, I will do it every single day. But when it's things like one-off things that I have to like, oh, remember this, remember that, I like, no system. Yeah, because it's it's willpower and it's it's because basically every time you do that, you're burning up cognitive fuel, right? Which you have a limited resource of, which is like if I have to think, it's like, oh, I mean, we've all had the experience of when you finally do something, you go, oh, gosh, that was so much easier than I was making it out to be. We kind of turn this entire little molehill into a mountain. That's because it's getting over the you don't have those neurons firing in a I do this every day. This is who I am. It's like for anyone that's listening that's a runner, it takes you zero thought to like run today. Cause like, you know, where your shoes are, you know, where you're going. You may even have a running buddy, you know, how far you're going. I think this is what you do. I'm not a runner. So all that would take me a lot of work. Like, ah, oh, you know what? The covers feel really good right now. So yeah, it's, it's important to think about what are the things you want to focus on? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and segueing from reading to your, your own book yourself, I'd love for you to just, um, give us a little bit of a synopsis of cracking leadership code. Sure, sure. So Cracking Leadership Code was not written after me like sitting down and going, hmm, like, what do I think about leadership? It actually was written not from the top down, but rather from the bottom up. Again, I'd worked with over 2,000 groups all over around the world. And what I kept seeing were these patterns kept emerging. Um, it turned out all the best leaders had certain things in common. All the worst leaders had certain things in common. And so what I started doing in 2011 is I started taking notes. Specifically, I started keeping a blog. Um, and at the beginning, no one read the blog except maybe my mom sometimes and me. And, uh, you know, and I would just basically, you know, something would come up in a training session. I'd make a note and or a story would come up and I'd turn it into a blog. And I started blogging consistently about 2013 once a week. And I did not miss a single. I posted on Saturday for whatever reason. I didn't miss a single Saturday for four years. So four years later, I have over 250 blog posts, basically. And I went through and I went, what are the common themes that keep showing up over and over again? 
And the common themes were those three meta skills I turned talked about earlier, right? Connection, communication, and collaboration. And so those became the scaffolding and the architecture of what the book was based on. And that ultimately what cracking the leadership code is about, it is designed to help people to accelerate their journey through leadership development. I think all of us want to have more influence. All of us want to, as I decide, defined leadership earlier, we want to be able to get things done more effectively. And sometimes we just don't know how. And so this is sort of taking some of the best of the best and distilling these ideas into very simple, practical formats so that you can figure out what can I do to become a better connector, to become a better communicator, to become a better collaborator. And by doing this, then I can start to see the difference that it's having both for me and for those that I would hope to lead. And so that's what the book's about. And it's all story-driven, as somebody wrote in one of the reviews on Amazon and said, this is great, a business book that actually wakes me up instead of putting me to sleep, because I'm sure we've all read too many of those. So yeah, it's really designed to be an engaging, inspiring, and enlightening read that is imminently practical. So it's been very well received. I'm super proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I quite like that format of uh, nonfiction books where they're done more in a sort of a story format rather than, you know, kind of dense things to get through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the management fable. It's not like who moved my cheese, that level of fable that all the way through it, but it does every, there's not, you can't go two pages without hitting another story. There's a story because again, I know how people learn. That's how I learn. That's what keeps me engaged. Like what is a good story that brings this to life? You know, I teach storytelling workshops to people about how can you as a leader use stories as part of your story tool, as your leadership toolkit, because they are so powerful and there is a science and an art to telling good stories. And it's not, if you don't do it, it's not that you're incapable of it. It's just that you haven't had practice. That's all. And so it's a skill that can be learned. Yeah. Fantastic. Great. So Alan, as we wrap up here, can you tell us where people can find out more about your work, um, obviously your book, and how they can connect with you online? For sure. Yeah. Probably easiest place to find all things around my work is alahunkins.com because my name is spelled funky. I'll spell that for you. It's www.alainhunkins.com. And you can browse around all the services that I offer, whether it's speaking or training or coaching. There's a whole page on the book. You can order it for wherever books are sold. There are a bunch of articles. I have some newsletters. You can download the first chapter of the book. You can also learn about this 30-day leadership challenge. I run open cohorts of that three times a year. And so usually January, May, and September. And so if you have any questions, uh, feel free to reach out. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. And since you've listened this far along, you are now part of the end of the podcast episode club, which means you can email me directly, which is Alain at AlainHunkins.com, which is A-L-A-I-N at AlainHunkins.com. And I do answer all emails received from people who are part of the end of the podcast club. I love that. Love that. Uh, great. So thank you, Alain, for your, for your time and uh, sharing your insights today. Uh, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been my pleasure. That's all for this episode. And if you want to follow the podcast on social media, we're on all the platforms. So if you just search for Leaders of Consulting or our handle Leaders of C on your social media platform of choice, that includes Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook, you'll find us there.